Mark chapter 6, we'll begin with verse 14, we'll read down to verse 29. It is a long passage, but we've got to keep it together. It's one unit, it's a story. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 14. <clears throat> King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when, Her for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to break his word to her, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body, laid it in a tomb. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray for strengthening in the name of Jesus, strengthening. We come to you on the merits of Jesus, no righteousness of our own, only that of Jesus. We do so by the power of the Spirit, and we ask you to help us. Strengthen your church. We ask you to use this passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday, I opened up the sermon telling of a friend of mine and his experience of sharing the gospel in a closed country. I told you my, my, my pastor friend made it out of the country and, in fact, I think is on vacation with his family this Sunday. But his colleague, his national partner and colleague, is, has not had as much luck. He is still now languishing in a dank prison cell. The State Department of the United States is involved in some degree. The International Mission Board has done about all they can do. 
He's in that prison cell all because he wanted to share the life-giving gospel of Jesus with another person and in so doing gave that person a Bible. I've thought about that all week. A lot of you have as well. You asked me about this gentleman. I've thought about it all week for several different reasons. And inevitably, when I think about it, I can't help but wondering what I would do. I can't help but wondering if, if, I, if I could measure up, simply because I have never actually been tested like that. Neither have most of you. But we will be. By God's grace, for the last 250 years, we have lived in a land of religious freedom and tolerance. But that open window of religious freedom is closing by the day. You can feel it at work, regardless of where a lot of you work in a, in a corporate job. You can feel it at work. If you go off to school, you can, you can sense it at school. Some of the pressures, public schools, colleges, you see it in women's sports. Where you, wherever you get your media, you can read it or follow it or watch it, media. You, you, can, experience in, you can experience it in the language that we are pressed into moving and, and using. The sun, the sun of the United States no longer shines on the people of God. And every Christian, every man and woman that's a Christian, every Christian must make up his or her mind. Where will you land? Will you? Will you be confident? Will you be faithful? Will you be strong? Will you, will you honor God? Will you yearn with the Apostle Paul? Will you have a desire to know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his death, the sufferings in his death? If so, then... I think this tragic story can be of use to you. I think this story is helpful. Here we are in Mark chapter 6. For the very first time, John Mark, who wrote this, Mark spends an, an extraordinary amount of print on somebody besides Jesus. It's the first time he does that, and he takes the spotlight, he takes it off Jesus for a moment, and he puts it on someone else. The man we know as John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the man that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 that John the Baptist, truly I say to you, of all of those born of women, there is not one person ever born greater than John the Baptist. And yet he had his head cut off. You know what this does? Let me pause and say, this reminds us that sometimes, sometimes, some of God's very best servants end up having 
tragic lives to the glory of God. Look, I want you to take this story and take strength from this story. I want you to read it and, and drink it in to, to digest this story. I want you to get a second wind in your life. I want you today to, to decide that you are going to live your life for Jesus regardless the consequences. Because in the end, faithfulness to Christ is what matters. In the end, in your life, faithfulness to Christ is what matters. Now, I've been trying all week, wrestling with this passage, I've been trying all week to think of the very best way to get at this story because it is such a long passage. So we took the time to read all the way through the story. And because I want you to get a grasp on it, I've decided to just walk through the story again. You follow along in your copy of God's Word or the The passage will be on the screen from time to time. I want to give some explanation. I want to keep it together. And then after we've come through the story and you have a good grasp on it, I'll come back and see if we can't make some applications. Join me there. Verse 14. And King Herod heard of it. Heard of what? Well, if you read it, he heard that the disciples had been sent out by Jesus There are 12 disciples. They're going in pairs in six different directions, and they are preaching Jesus, and more and more people are are responding to the call. Starts with the peasants and moves up with those that have money. Finally, it reaches Herod. Herod. Who is this Herod? This is not Herod the Great. This is Herod Agrippa, you might put beside it. Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is the son of someone named Herod the Great. We met Herod the Great in the beginning of the Gospels in Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus was born and King Herod heard of it. Wise men came. When when Herod heard of it, he said, let's find out where that boy is born. He's born in Bethlehem. King Herod is the one that, that had all the babies from two years old and under slaughtered in one little town. King Herod the Great was a terrible man. He had at least ten wives. He get tired of one of his sons, he would just kill him. He killed two of his sons, just murdered, just had him murdered. I mean, I mean, even the Roman Caesar would say of King Herod, it's better to be one of Herod's dogs than to be one of his children. So this man in this passage came up with a terrible father. King Herod Agrippa that we've met here, this man is not a king like King Herod the Great. King Herod Agrippa was not really even a king. Luke and Matthew call him a tetrarch. Mark's just being nice, calling him king. He has one-fourth of what Herod had. He's a, he's a middle manager. He's a straw boss. He's trying to make his name. So we find out that this guy, King Herod, he heard of what was going on with Jesus, that the name of Jesus was rising up. And verse 14 and 15 and 16, we find out there are three different rumors about who Jesus is. Look at the three rumors in verses 14 and 15 and 16. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So here's the first rumor. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So Jesus is doing miracles. The rumors are that the reason he can do miracles is he's some sort of ghost of John the Baptist. That's one wild rumor. Here's the second one, verse 15. Some are saying that he is Elijah. 
He preaches like Elijah. That, that's how John the Baptist preached. So that's who Jesus is. They haven't seen him yet. They're just getting rumors. And then there's a third choice uh, in verse 15. And some people are saying he's just a prophet like the, just like the old, old Testament prophets. That's what he's like. So you've got three rumors going around, and you'll notice in verse 16, Herod Agrippa decides to, he decides to believe the most outlandish one. Verse 14, the outlandish one is that John the Baptist, after having his head cut off, has been raised from the dead and coming after Herod. That's essentially again verse 16. You'll notice what the text says. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I killed. It's his conscience, verse 16. John, whom I killed, I beheaded, has been raised. Herod is not a religious man, but he is a superstitious man. He's heard the tales. His conscience has plagued him. Now, at this point in the story, Mark realizes, okay, I've been telling you something, you don't really know what's going on. Because the last time we, ever, we heard of John the Baptist was back in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, when Mark tells us that John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod, and he went off the scene. So he tells the, all the stories of Jesus, and then here he pauses to say, let me catch you up. So verse 17 is a flashback. He flashes back for us, verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison now here's why. For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because he had married her. Now here's a, let, let's, pull, let's pull up to date here. What's going on here with Herod, Philip, and Herodias? I told you Herod was raised by King Herod the Great, a terrible man. Herod learned to live by his own passions and by his own lusts. Herod the Great had lots of children, his children and other, other children. Herodias, Herodias was the daughter, this is twisted, Herodias was the daughter of one of this Herod's brothers. She had married one of his other brothers. So this woman Herodias that he had seen and desired, she was his niece and his sister. It is a twisted up family. And so he was already a married man. He was married to a woman who was the daughter of king of Arabia. That king came and destroyed Herod's army at some point. Herod lived, and he lived long enough to get Herodias. He pursued her, took her from his brother, and married this woman. And verse 18 tells us that John the Baptist, what got him in trouble, is that he said what everybody already knew, that this is not only weird... It's wrong. T take note there. All he said was, you're breaking God's law. Verse 18. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Never mind all of the weird and twisted nature that's going on in your family. Besides all of that, you're breaking God's law. What he was doing is saying what is right. What Herod was doing was absolutely wrong. Everybody there knew it was wrong. Nobody is saying that it is wrong. We're all pretending like this is normal. It is not normal. And John had the wherewithal to stand up and say, what you're doing is wrong. Well, that creates a problem. Not so much for Herod, who really is kind of a spineless guy. 
The problem is not so much with Herod, but you'll notice in verse 19, it's Herodias. Verse 19 tells us that Herodias had a grudge. Hell hath no fury. Herodias had a grudge against him, and she wanted to kill him. And so here's what Herod does, because he likes to hear John the Baptist, and he don't want him killed. He arrests him not to punish him. He arrests him to keep him away from his wife. Puts him in a dungeon, probably at a fortress close to uh, the Dead Sea. Puts him in a dungeon there, keeps him away from Herodias, who really, boy, she, John has crossed her, now look, her desire is for power. She wants power. Herod's desire, he's just lustful. He lives by his desires. She's rising with power. He's walking with lust. It's a strange uh, combination you find there in verse 20. In verse 20 is this really weird... Some of you have known people that are not Christians or maybe live a life of sin, but have enough of the residue of Christianity that they would respect the church or at least be superstitious enough that maybe you walk into a room and if you're the pastor and people are normally have a really foul mouth, they might curse and then say, oh, sorry, preacher. Like there's a magic, you have some sort of magic that you're going to do. So that's sort of the, sort of the feel of Herod. Herod liked to hear John the Baptist preach, verse 20. He feared John, tells us. Herod feared John. David, David Hume, the great uh, humanist and agnostic during the time of George Whitfield, was up early one morning at 5 o'clock to go hear George Whitfield preach, and he uh, passed someone that recognized him and said, Are you David Hume? Yes. Are you going to hear George Whitfield preach? Yes. Why are you going to hear him preach? You don't believe anything that he preaches. And David Hume says, Yeah, but, but, but he does. So for some reason, Herod was drawn to John the Baptist. The text says that he feared John. He, he knew this. He was righteous. He, that is to say, he, he was not a hypocrite. He actually did do the things he says he believes. He, he lived them out. So he was righteous. He was holy. There was a spiritual depth to him that Herod was somehow drawn to. So he has this weird fascination with, with John, although he's not willing to give up his lustful, sinful lifestyle. So he's in this weird indecision. Verse 20 says that he knew he was holy, he kept him safe because of this superstitious thought. When he heard him, it puts him in this great confusion. He was greatly perplexed. I like it, but I don't know what to do with it. And yet he heard him gladly, verse 18, 19, 20 says. Heard him gladly. So this, this went on for a little while, but there came a time in verse 21, there's always an opportunity. Herodias has been biding her time. An opportunity came. Revenge of its patient looks for an opportunity. She finds one, verse 21. An opportunity came. It was his birthday, a time to honor this man who is, who is trying to climb the ladder. And so what he does is has, have a big party in verse 21. He invites all of the important people. You'll notice the three sections, some of the nobles, those that have some inherited dignity that can give him credibility. He ha has them come to his house. He has the military commanders come in. It's good to have guys that know how to lead armies. So he's... All of the military commanders are there. And then in verse 21, and the leading men of Galilee, the people with money and prestige and power are at his house. They're enjoying a party for him. 
The party gets out of hand a little bit near the latter part of the evening in verse 22. And instead of have a, having a slave do this, a servant girl do, do this, if you're royalty, you would normally, if you're going to have entertainment, you wouldn't have one of your own. But this is the, this is the twisted Herod family. Herodias sends now this girl, her daughter, maybe she's 18 or 19 or 20, she's a full-grown woman. Her name is Salome, we find out. And that little girl, not a little girl, that grown woman does a dance. Herod is there with all of his people he wants to impress, and she dances in such a way that they are entertained. So entertained that Herod, lightened up by the wine that he's been drinking, says, ask anything you want. Verse 22, ask me whatever you want. And then with the people around showing off, even up to half of the kingdom, and I'll give it to you. Salome is, Salome is her mother's daughter. So immediately she runs to her mother, the text says, verse 24, she runs to her mother and says, what, what should I ask for? And now the trap shuts. Herodias knows he has made this vow in front of all of his friends, and he likes to be in power. He will not be able to deny. Go back and tell him, you want John the Baptist's head. It's weird, too, because she came back to the king in verse 25, and she said, I want you to give me at once John the Baptist's head. And then Salome adds this, this dark turn, I want it on a platter. Verse 26 tells us that Herod knew he had been caught. The king now is exceedingly sorrowful. He's, he's between a rock and a hard place. Everybody has heard what he said. Now, is he going to be true to what he said? Or is he going to be seen as, as weak? So, so, so that he wouldn't look bad in front of the guests. Verse 26, but because of his oaths and the guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And so the king, verse 27, immediately sent an executioner with orders, bring John's head. The executioner with, a, with an axe that would have a curved blade. I mean, the guy knows what he's doing. He's done this before. I mean, this is, this is his job. He goes to John the Baptist, and with one fell swoop, it doesn't take much. He chops his head off. It's funny that uh, verse 28, he brought, he must have heard what the girl said. The executioner dressed it up and put it on the tray, brought the head of John the Baptist on the tray to the girl. The girl takes, such a strange family, twisted, takes the head of John the Baptist to her mother. And the door is closed. In verse 29, John's friends, the disciples, came and they buried him. What was left of him? In the end, you see, it's faithfulness to Christ that what matters. Nobody, nobody here names their children Herod. Lots of guys named John in the room. Now, with that story fresh in our hearts, I want to just maybe end um, with, with five, five ways to apply this story. Five ways to, to help us be strong in our convictions. Here's the first one, number one. Your convictions will be obvious.
obvious. Your convictions, what your true convictions are, what you actually genuinely believe is, is how you will live your life. And so how you live your life will be the, the way your convictions are known. Verse 14 tells us that the disciples had been out preaching. They went through all the communities and they lived in such a way. There was such transformative power in the gospel that it was obvious and that obvious level of conviction it became so well known in the communities that the rulers had to see it. So, so we, we don't only hold on to a body of beliefs. It's not just that we have a, a doctrine. We do have doctrine, and we should have it. We should have a body of belief. We must know what it is we believe. We must have a clear picture of the gospel. Every Sunday, I'll, I try to share the gospel. If you're new with us, when I say the gospel, this is what I mean. God is holy. He created all of us in his image. The image of us created by God, the image of us has been disfigured by sin, our own sin. That sin not only takes us far away from God, the Bible says that, that we are dead in sin. That, that sin has made it so that we have committed a crime. That sin is a crime against God. We all believe in justice. We get that from God. God is a just God, and if crime is committed, it must be punished that punishment is poured out in full, this is the gospel, on Jesus. So we believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He lived perfectly being righteous and then goes to the cross and takes the punishment, the wrath of God, that God killed his son in your place. It's the gospel. Then God raised him from the dead on a Sunday. That's why we go to church on a Sunday. He's ascended into heaven, and the gospel promise is if you will turn from sin, you turn away from that and put your faith that Jesus died for you, the, prom the promise is that God will save you. So that is a body of knowledge. It is also the transforming power. It is not just what we believe. It is also a way of life. So as a Christian... Your convictions, whatever they are, they will become obvious. And if you believe what the Bible has said, then the world will see it. The little world that you live in will see your convictions. It did so for the, for the disciples. Something else we learn here, the second thing about your convictions. Number two, your convictions will be disturbing for the people around you. John was a man of conviction. Jesus sent out his disciples. They preached with conviction. That was the problem in verses 14 and 15 and 16, that people were hearing about Jesus, and, and Herod is trying to wrap his mind around who he is. And it's disturbing. It's Herod's conscience down in verse 16 when he hears about Jesus, he thinks it's John the Baptist. In verse 16, Herod says, John the Baptist, that I beheaded. You can hear not quite a confession, but a guilty conscience. One of the things that you're going to run into if you are a Bible-believing Christian, that you just live your life, one of the things you're going to run into is that your life becomes disturbing for those that are not. That if you're someone that actually believes what the Bible teaches about several issues of the day, not that you're mean about it, not that you're judgmental, not that you point a finger, but just simply live your life 
your life will become disturbing. It did for, it did for Herod. His conscience. You know what's so amazing is that he, he had a conscience. Everyone has one. It's God-given. God has put that in you to know right and wrong. He understood what wrong was, and he knew he had done the absolute wrong thing with John, that he capitulated under the pressure from his wife and all of his friends, and now he's living with this guilty conscience that's, that's given by God. God gives us a conscience to show us what is right and what is wrong and to lead us to not only be guilty of sin, but then receive forgiveness as we believe in Christ. So your convictions as a Christian, 2023, they're going to be disturbing. I'll give you a third thing to consider. Number three, your convictions will create hardship for you. Your convictions, they're going to make life hard for you. There was a time in the United States, if you go back 50 years ago, and everything wasn't great 50 years ago, one of the things that you can look back on, that to claim to be a Christian 50 years ago was actually helpful to you professionally. It helped you in the community if people thought you were a God-fearing person. There would be some respect. When I went off to seminary, and I was at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, there was a company called TexPAC. It was sort of a poor man's version of UPS. And TexPAC, as a rule, wanted to hire seminary students because they thought they would be honest. There was just some, bit, some baked in positive thinking of Christians. That is long since gone. Your convictions now will be a hardship. Here, here's where I get this. In verses 17 and 18 and 19, what you have here is Herodias has come on the scene. Herod had married this woman who was his niece and also his sister-in-law. It is foul six ways from Sunday. He did that, and John the Baptist, in verse 18, had the wherewithal to say that's wrong. People didn't applaud his bravery. John the Baptist stood up and said that is wrong, verse 18, and all that did was make a person in power, Herodias, mad and want to kill him. Your convictions, your conviction, especially if you have a Christian sexual ethic, if you believe that sex was designed by God, is what the Bible teaches, to be in the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman, and, and outside of that, every other practice is sinful, if you believe that, not only are you right, you're going to create hardship for yourself. If you just live that truth, and when you're asked and you speak the truth of the Bible about the Christian sexual ethic, I mean, this is what John the Baptist is doing. He's addressing the twisted sexual ethic of the Herods. When you decide to speak that, that will be a hardship for you. If you hold the Bible to be true, God's creation and his design for a man and a woman from the very beginning, if you hold that to be true, if you hold that salvation is given to all of those 
by God's grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, if you hold that to be true, if you hold that God's good creation for man and for woman, that the way he has created us by way of our genders was good and is good and we should flourish as men and women, if you hold that to be true, your convictions will create hardship for you. Let me give you another. Just, we're just from the passage. Number four, your convictions will be confusing to people. You're, they're they're going to be confusing. I get that from verse 20. This is Herod's experience. when he, His experience with John the Baptist is he just couldn't understand. He knew he liked being around him. He wanted to, to hear him preach. He would go and hear him preach gladly, and yet he was greatly perplexed. He didn't know what to do with John the Baptist. He wanted to be there, though. I mean, look at the description of verse 20. The text says that he feared John the Baptist. He, he saw in his life that he was righteous. That is to say, he lived what he believed. He wasn't a hypocrite. He saw that he had great integrity. He knew he was holy. There was a certain depth to his character. He wanted to keep him safe, away from his... He protected John the Baptist from Herodias. He, he was greatly confused. That greatly perplexed in, in verse 20. He was of two minds. This is where so many people in a church find themselves. Okay, I like to go there. Like what, I like to be a part. I can't commit. This is, the, this is the middle way of indecision. Like, he would hear him gladly. I'm glad this is, this is Felix in Acts. This is Judas. This is some of you. For those of you that are Christians, this is where we find ourselves that, that so often we hold on to this truth and we want to do our best to make sure we adorn the truth of the gospel with a life that matches it, that we, we speak the truth in love, we represent correctly, we live with kindness. But there comes a point that no matter how you dress up the truth, it ends up being offensive. And it's confusing because people are confused because they can recognize that you, you're, you're really a nice person, that you work hard, a great employee, that they enjoy being with you, that you're kind and forgiving, that there's something about you that's different. But you hold on to these, these ethics, this truth of the Bible. That's what made Christians it was so, so confusing for the early, early history for Christians so confusing for society because they took care of one another. They loved each other. They would start things like hospitals. It was Christians early on that stood against abortion and stood against slavery. It was Christians that had all of these things to help others flourish, and yet they held these, these truths. Herod liked being with John the Baptist. He just couldn't stand when he turned his truth cannon toward his sin. Your conviction will be confusing to people. Number five. Just a truth for you this morning. Your convictions will be costly. This is here to teach us. This passage is here to, to, to stiffen our resolve. This is here to sort of to bring you here. 2023. To realize the world that you live in that that your gospel convictions, it may cost you friendships, it may cost you, some of it's already cost you financially, 
You already have either not received a promotion or maybe even lost a job because of your convictions. Your convictions will be costly. From verse 21 to verse 29, you have the revenge of a woman named Herodias. Her revenge is against John the Baptist and his convictions. There's only one reason she had him killed. That's because he spoke truth. So what do we do? Learn, learn from this. I want you to be confident. Be confident in the Lord. The Bible says be confident in the Lord that our God is a good and sovereign God and has placed you sometimes in suffering, sometimes in hard times, sometimes in tragedy. He has you there for His glory. Be confident in His goodness that our good God is in control. Be strong. There's a second thing. Be strong. The Bible says be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, not in your own ability, not in your professionalism. You be strong in the Lord. Be strong in His Word. Know the power of the Word. There's a third thing. Be faithful. Be faithful to the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of God that tells us that God has loved you and saved you through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. Be faithful to the gospel. When you think of the hard times and, you, and you're being tempted, it's good for you to think about Jesus on the cross. Think about the price of sin. Think about the power of resurrection. Be faithful. The last one is, is honor God. Honor the Lord. In every hard situation, in every tragedy, with humility, trust that God is sovereign and in control, that he is doing this for the good of his people, for those that he loves, and cling to Christ regardless what it is that you walk through. Because in the end, faithfulness to Christ is what matters. This morning with your heads bowed, why don't we ask God to make us faithful? This morning, before we sing another song in worship, I'm going to ask you, just in a time of prayer and commitment, let's ask God to help us in our faithfulness. Let's ask God to make us strong. Let's ask God to use us for His glory. Let's ask God to help us speak truth and live the truth of the gospel. Let's do all things knowing that in the end, faithfulness to Christ is what matters. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us today. Pray that as we sing this song that we might be strengthened in the Lord. I pray that you'd call people to faith in Christ today. Pray that you would make it so that we worship with confidence and joy. Father, I pray that you protect our children, that you make our children strong that you build our students into young men and women that love God and love the word, that you find us a church that is loving and kind and faithful and true and strong and built on the gospel. We thank you for the joy of singing. Lift our hearts to you in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.